Have any of you ever uh, seen one of those religious tracks before? Might kind of look like this. Uh, sometimes uh, you find them in highly trafficked areas. They're little pamphlets or cards, and you'll see them, and uh, they'll be present there. Sometimes it's, it looks like a $100 bill, and you're like, God has spoken to me, you know, and you, you reach down there, and then you think, well, not, maybe not so much, but at least with the $100 bill, you know. And I find these, uh, I found these in some of the weirdest places before. I go to Ball State usually once a week to study, and uh, I'll see these like all over, just like on the sidewalks. And uh, people are walking over them and different things. I think they figured it out now. Um, but I've seen them there. Seen them in public restrooms, uh, seen them in libraries. I had one one time, they rolled it up in the toilet paper, and like when you got ready to pull, there it comes, like right out there. Uh, that was kind of a scary thing. Um, I've seen them on planes, trains. I've seen them on the, uh, you know, uh, dash of my car. But typically, they're kind of like this in-your-face kind of religious message to try to grab your attention. Here's one that I've seen recently. Warning, hell and the, fi- and the lake of fire are waiting for you. Doesn't that want to, don't you just want to go to God in the middle of that? Like, whoa, wow, warning, hell and the lake of fire, they're waiting for you. Like we had nothing else to do, so we're just waiting around, you know? Uh, Here's the next one. Uh, Your death, you can't really see it too well, but up in the upper right-hand corner, it has a tombstone, or left-hand corner, it has a tombstone that has R.I.P., rest in peace. So a lot of these things like talk about death. Like, you're going to die, and, you know, where are you going to spend it? But you're going to die, and it's all about death. Here's one that I found. The death cookie. (laughs) Then you turn it over. Don't you want to bite of that? You know what I mean? Like, what's up with that? You know? Weird. Uh, Here's another one that I saw one time. On one side of the card, you see this guy tying his shoe. You flip it over. Here's the words. You may tie your shoes this morning, but the undertaker could untie them tonight. Yay, God, right? Like, whoo, I'm ready to, you know, jump right in. But these kind of tracks are kind of scare tactics. And typically, death is always the theme. If you die tonight, where would you spend eternity? If you die tonight, are you ready? But you know what I've never seen on any track that I've ever looked at before? What if you don't die tonight? Like, what if you don't die tonight? How are you going to live tomorrow? It seems like these tracks... They help people prepare to die. They just don't prepare them very much to live in the day. You know, for uh, many in the Christian faith, we spend a lot of time thinking about our death. We may be fearful of it. Some some of you, even as I'm talking about death, it it freaks you out. You don't want to think about it, but yet you think about it a lot. 
And we spend a lot of time thinking about death, and we don't always spend a lot of time thinking about how we're going to live. I saw a recent study uh, this week by some sociologists who uh, took a group of Christians and non-Christians and asked them a whole series of questions. And what they found at the end of the study is that the Christians and the non-Christians, you couldn't see any difference at all. There was very little difference when it came to their financial decisions. There was very little difference in the divorce rate. There was very little difference in their attitudes, their moral code, choices that they make. This is just very little difference. There was just very little difference between Christians and non-Christians in this study. Except when it came to death. That both of them thought about death a lot and they both didn't think about living very much. So today, what I want us to look at in our series on Ephesians, Beyond Belief, is chapter 4. And Paul talks about the importance of living a full life in Christ. And uh, if you would, if you pull out your little uh, insert there, uh, I think it's in your actual program. But in your program, there's a teaching outline. Uh, We'll go through that uh, this morning. Now, Paul kicks off his entire uh, reading there by giving a rallying cry. He says this in verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, he begins by saying, a prisoner for the Lord. He's not just saying that, like, I'm a slave to Christ. No, he's literally saying, I'm in prison. When he writes this, he is in prison in Rome, and he's writing to this church in Ephesus, which is in present-day Turkey. And as he writes to them, he says, you guys know, got to know how to live. And what they would do is they would take the letter, and there wasn't just one church, but we think probably multiple churches that met in houses, and they would pass the letter from one believer to another, and they would read his letter. And he was encouraging them to live a life worthy of Christ. He's like, I'm sitting here in prison, but I want to encourage you that you should live your lives worthy of the calling that you have received. Now, the uh, word worthy here, which is kind of the key word uh, in this first verse, um, the Greek word or the original word uh, is the word axios. It's where we get uh, our word axle from. You have axles on your car. Why? So that when the weight comes down, you have something to withhold the weight. And that's what this word means. It means weight. Paul is like, consider the magnitude, the weight, the calling of God, and make sure that your life is reflecting that. And so for the rest of the chapter, Paul wants to talk about the way that we live. Now, I want to jump down a little bit to uh, verse 17. Let's unpack this a little bit more. But verse 17 says this. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. All of them were Gentiles, (laughs) pretty much. And so he's saying, I don't want you to live like the culture. I want you to live in the ways of Christ. 
And so right off the bat, he's saying, I'm going to make a distinction between the way that people in the world live or those who are your neighbors and the way that I want you to live as a follower of Christ. Verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Now, there are a couple of themes, a couple of phrases that I'd like you to underline. The first one here is in verse 19. It says, lost all sensitivity. So if you can just kind of underline that, uh, lost all sensitivity. The second one is the word indulge. Uh, that is right there. And then the last is those last three words, that phrase, full of greed. Full of greed. How many of you, by a sign of hands, uh, you love flying on airplanes? Raise your hand. Okay? Alright. How many of you hate to fly on airplanes? Raise your hand. How many of you didn't vote? Yeah, you're all liars, so, you know, just be with me here, okay? Um, Now, call me crazy, but I love to fly on airplanes. I love everything about the experience. I don't even mind the whole, you know, going through the whole uh, process for, uh, you know, security. It doesn't bother me. Uh, I love uh, to fly. I love to be in the airport. I like to people watch. You ever do that before? You're in chairs and you sit there and you just watch people walk by. A lot of interesting, you know, the kids was weird animals. There's a lot of weird animals in airports. I mean, you see a lot of stuff. And uh, I really enjoy um, meeting new people, seeing what's going on in their life. And I love to eat in the terminals. I mean, there's nothing like, you know, you got a, you got a pretzel, you got a hot dog, you got, you know, Coke. I mean, I'm just like eating all the time when I'm at the airport, you know, kids are crying. I'm like, shut up. Let's go get a pretzel. You know, I mean, it's like no problem whatsoever. Now, the only thing about the whole flying process that I despise is the middle seat. I think hell is going to be basically an airplane where everyone's in the middle seat because I don't mind the aisle. In fact, I love the aisle. I can do with the window. But when you're in the middle seat, it is just, you know, pain filled. So uh, when you fly or whenever you do fly, how many of you make sure that you have reading material? Anyone make sure you have reading material? Well, goody two shoe for you. Okay. (laughs) my wife is the same way. She prepares a library. I mean, there are books. I'm the carrier, but she's the librarian. And I got like all these books. She's got all of her books. Uh, she's got books for the kids. There'll be people around us that won't have reading material. And she's like, hey, have you ever read this before? And she'll be, she'll just start handing out things. She doesn't pack any book reading for me, though. I'm responsible for that. And there's a problem with that. I don't really pack books. I pack snacks. Now, if you need a snack on an airplane, I'm the guy to go to. Cheez-Its, you name it, it's all in there. I'm ready to go. But books, not so much. So there's many times I get on the plane and I look around. I got no reading material. And I pray usually at this moment, God, would someone leave a newspaper in the pocket in front of me? And I'll go in there and sometimes there's a newspaper. I get to read it. Sometimes there's nothing there at all. And so I'm left to the dreaded reading of this, Sky Mom. 
this basically is a magazine of overpriced, useless junk. Okay? That's what it is. But the last time uh, that we flew, I looked at uh, one of these Sky Mall magazines. And uh, in the midst of that, I found some things I just wanted to share with you this morning. You could have one of these. Okay? Here's the first one. I call it, the, it's called the Litter Robot, but it's the Kitty Litter Robot. This thing is a couple hundred bucks, folks. And it really doesn't tell you what happens. Like, after the cat poops, does it just stay in there or does it go to outer space? You know, like, you have no idea. I would think for a couple hundred dollars, it better go somewhere, you know. I better not clean it up. Okay, here's the second one. This, you might know what it is, but it is a dog doorbell. Seriously. Like for hundreds of years, dogs just scratch on the door. You're like, let them in. Now, all of a sudden, that's not good enough. We actually have to have a doorbell to let the dog in. So, ding dong. Who is it? Rover. Come on in, Rover. Like, seriously? What's up with that? Okay, let's look at this next one. This is the lip plumper. Lip plumper. You put this thing on your lips, and then all of a sudden it makes them look fuller and better. I mean, can't you tell? Look at the women's lip on the left-hand side. That's horrible. But after the lip plumper, look at that. You know, it's just amazing. Now, let me just say something. If you're watching The Bachelorette with your lip plumper, okay, you got some issues. You probably need some help, so go do that. Okay, here's the next one. Seriously? Like when you're there, what are you listening to? I mean, is it like Eye of the Tiger, you know? Do, 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 Like, seriously? What's up with that? Maybe it's smooth jazz, you know? Okay, I'm going to do it. I did it in the first one, so. Maybe it's hard rock, you know? Like. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm not right, you know? I mean, I'm not. I'm just not right. Well, as I looked at this passage uh, this week, and I saw those words, indulge, and I saw the word, uh, full of greed, I thought to myself that, you know, as a culture, folks, we have become addicted to consumption. I mean, the culture is telling us, just buy a whole bunch of stuff, and you'll be happy. This week, I read a quote from a couple of cultural commentators, and this is what they said. Consumption has filled the vacuum of meaning in the 21st century and plays a powerful role in our ambitions. You may not get an interesting job. After all, not everyone can. But you can moderate the anger and sadness of missing out by buying hard and acquiring goods that describe you and how you should live. And so in our text today, Paul says this. He says, I'm going to warn you about the futility of their thinking. 
Which means the pointlessness, the uselessness, the vainness of the thinking of the culture. And so the question becomes then, what is leading the thinking of our culture? I mean, every single one of us in this room and throughout the United States is directed by something within our culture. Our values, our ideals, our thoughts, we're all influenced by it. And I think you could uh, make a, a case that maybe the greatest person who has influenced the culture of the United States over the past 50 years is uh, this guy right here. Anybody know who that is? Walt Disney. More than anyone else, he has influenced the culture, at least for children and teenagers, maybe more than anyone else. I did a study this week on the Disney Corporation. I don't know if you know this or not, but I found that the Disney Network Corporation actually owns all of this. It'll come up on the left-hand side. ABC, ESPN, Discovery Channel, A&E, and the Disney Channel. Then they've either created or they actually uh, have purchased the rights of Mickey Mouse, Winnie the Pooh, Hannah Montana, Jesse, Dog with a Block. And the reason why Muppets has been so great lately is because Disney bought it, bought the rights of it, and now they do all that. But there's probably nothing that has influenced uh, our culture more this year, 2014, than Disney again, and it was through this movie, Frozen. International, global, it has affected the culture. Walt Disney died, folks, in 1966, and he's still raising American children. So what is the message of Disney? Well, it all comes down to the popular phrase that's probably connected to Disney more than any other. And it's that phrase, when you wish upon a star, what? Your dreams, what? Will come true. When you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. Walt Disney, when he developed the concept of what Disney would be, he said it's going to be a utopian world free of pain and complexity. A world of escape. And do you know why he wanted that? Because his life as a child had a lot of pain and hurt within the midst of it. And he'd gone through multiple bankruptcies in his business life. And he wanted to create something that was utopia. And so he purchased stories from other people. And then he developed each one of them so that at the end of the story, he could take away the harshness of life and give us an escape. He bought stories like this, the first one. What's that? Pinocchio. If you read the original book of Pinocchio, guess what? It doesn't have a happy ending. Jiminy Cricket actually kills Pinocchio. Raising your kids to that? Hey! You know? But it was all about uh, trying to influence Italian boys on the character that they should have. Okay? Walt Disney takes this, he moves it all around, and the character becomes, at the end of, of, uh, of the story, everything's wonderful. Everything's happy. Here's the next one. Mary Poppins. I don't know how many of you saw the story about Mary Poppins. The movie came out uh, not too long ago. And uh, my wife and I saw that movie. 
And again, a very different story. And he had to fight to make sure that the animation came into it. That uh, there was this happy story uh, at the end. Saving Mr. Banks uh, was, was that story. And many times he would go to great liberties to take the story and then he'd move it around so that at the end everyone is happy. Neil Gabler, who wrote uh, about Disney's life, says this. Walt Disney made dreams come true, or at least gave the impression he did, and remodeled a world not only near to his heart's desire, but to yours and mine. In numerous ways, Disney struck what may be the very fundament of entertainment, the promise of a perfect world that conforms to our wishes. You see, what Walt Disney did was he, he made a promise that if we just believed that we could have anything that we wanted. And there are many children that walk through life. And the reason why we have such an issue with entitlement is because there's this thought that you give them everything that they want and they'll be happy. And it leads really to what the message I think of the culture is. And it's this. If you get what you want, you will be happy. That's the message of the culture. If you just give what you want, everything's going to be fine. But you know as well as I do that the cultural message is a lie. Because Walt Disney World is not the happiest place in the world. You know why I know that? Because I've been there in the middle of the summer before (laughs) where it was 100 degrees And 90% humidity. And we decided to go to one of these character dinners where you pay a lot of money to watch some bum inside a costume dance around for five minutes and then he goes, oh, I'm too hot. So they have to take a break. I stood in line for two hours one time to see Winnie the Pooh characters. We're outside the Crystal Palace, which it wasn't very much of a palace when you got inside. But we were outside waiting in the hot and, you know, the kids were whining and that's just my mom and dad. (laughs) And then on top of that, I have Jordan and Shiloh whose face is red. They're dehydrated. The sun's coming down and we get in there and I'm like, seriously, they're taking a break. The characters are. Then you get inside and we had cold chicken nuggets and macaroni and cheese. You're like, seriously? And I mean, it was just a difficult experience. So it's not the happiest place in the world. Then it gets even worse. You get out in the park and you buy a hot dog. We did this. Bought a hot dog. Eight dollars. I hate Disney. I do. do. (laughs) I'll be going again, I'm sure, in a few months. But the culture tells us, if you get what you want, what? You'll be happy. Now, the reality is, this isn't a new idea, folks. This is an idea from the very beginning of time in a garden where there was a man and a woman who decided that everything that they had in paradise wasn't enough. And the serpent came and said to Eve, Eve, if 
you take this one thing, though, you can have everything else, but if you take this one thing, you'll be exactly like God. Your eyes will be open. You'll have a better life. You'll be happy. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this. He said this, All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, is the long, terrible story of a man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. Let's go back to our text. Remember, Paul is saying, don't live your life like everyone else. And in verse 20, he says this, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted and its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to be on the new and to put on the new self created to be like God. In true righteousness and holiness. Now there's a couple of phrases I'd like you to underline as well. The first one there is in verse 23. It says to be made new in the attitude of your minds. So if you just want to underline that on verse 23. To be made new in the attitude of your minds. And then the next one there is uh, in verse 24. To put on the new self created to be like God. Now, there is one word that is used twice in 23 and 24. It's the word new. It's like new and new. New squared. God is going to make a new creation, and God is changing us and forming us into something new. So how does God do that? Well, if you look at verse 11 in Ephesians, as Paul is talking about the church, All of a sudden he says, you know what it is? It's the church. The church is what brings transformation into people's lives through Christ. Verse 11 says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the son of God and become mature. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, I don't know what thoughts or feelings come to your mind when you hear the word church. But for me, when I hear that word, the church has represented the very best and the very worst Moments in my life. I've been more hurt, more judged, more ostracized, more rejected by the church than of any other group of people that I know. And yet, conversely, I've also experienced more love. And more grace and more acceptance by people in the church than any other group I've ever been a part of. Outrageous generosity has been placed upon me. Kindness that you, that I, it blows my mind. 
The church has been there for me when I've been sick, when I've had family members die, when I've grieved, when I've felt discouraged and lost. It was the church that wrapped itself around me and said, we are for you. But the church, with all of its imperfections, is this mysterious supernatural community that is totally counterculture. I mean, it, sometimes it's weird for me to think that people even come to hear me speak. Because sometimes I tell you, this is something in your life that is wrong that you need to change, and people keep coming back. The culture would say, just keep doing what you're doing. But the church actually is counter to the culture. And it's a living organism. It's not an organization. Organizations die off, folks. The church is the one thing for the past 2,000 years that has survived. The Roman Empire, Ottoman, Ottoman, Ottoman Empire, Standard Oil. Remember Standard Oil as a kid? That was like the only oil plate. No. And all of these things die off, but the church continues to live and breathe. And yet, this is what the church does. It exposes narcissism, greed, self-centeredness. It reminds us that our life is short and we cannot afford to waste our time with our resources on meaningless things. But that we must give our lives to something that's significant. So you know what is the message of the culture. Now let's look at the message of the church. And there are three things that I want to look at in the next three verses. The message of the church. The church reshapes our priorities. That's what it does. It reshapes our priorities. Verse 14. Paul says this. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Paul is basically saying that it's the church that helps people be transformed to look like Jesus Christ. For most of the week, folks, we are surrounded by messages. We are bombarded by them that say that if you get everything you want, you will be happy. And when we gather at the ch- as a church, we finally realize that's not true. And God is trying to save your life, and he's trying to save my life from wasting it on trivial things that do not matter in the end. You see... When my heart starts to wander away from God, when it wanders away from God, and I start getting consumed by the comfort or the pleasures of our culture and the American dream of more stuff, it's the church community that captures my attention. Every single Sunday that we do Soda Pop Sunday, And we're reminded that for $500, you could save the life of an orphan in Kenya. All of a sudden, my heart says, I don't need to hold tightly to this. I want to help to save lives. 
And so I want to give something away. And you do too. In September, we'll do this again. When I'm reminded that there are people who are dying of AIDS throughout the world. Today, folks, 25,000 people will die. They're dying right now, even as I'm talking. People are dying just because they don't have clean water. And all of a sudden, no message in the culture is telling me that. The church tells me that. And all of a sudden, I want to give my life. And I want to give my finances to that. When we go and serve at Morning Star Bread Basket, which will come up. It's a little kind of soup kitchen that's in our community. We go there several times during the year. And we feed the homeless. We feed those who are abandoned. We feed those who are ignored by our community. And each time that the church does that, all of a sudden I'm reminded... I need to be there for my community. When we come together here and we sing songs, I can't tell you how many times I've sat right there and Derek and the band's leading us in music and all of a sudden I just feel the presence of God and it's because I'm with the community. And all of a sudden, God gets a whole lot bigger and I become infinitely smaller. I know of a young couple in our uh, church. Both of them have great jobs. Financially, they're doing extremely well. But they have chosen to rent, even though they could buy their own house. They have chosen to rent because of the cause of Christ. They want to give more of their finances so that they can tithe and give. They're some of our top givers, folks, and they're renting. And I'm like, that's what I want to be a part of. People that are willing to give of themselves. You see, all week long, the world tries to convince you that what you need is bigger and better and brighter and prettier. And it's only the faith community that says, let's see things the way that they really are. Folks, God knows the longings of your heart. He does. Some of you are going through some tough stuff right now. God's not aloof to that. He knows exactly where you're at. But he knows that it's not sex or money or power or more stuff or more money that's going to change your life. It's when you authentically know the creator of the universe and you join him in his work. And that's why, folks, when when you show love to people who are not very lovable. That's when God moves. We call them EGRs, extra grace required people, right? There's a lot of those people in my life. And every time you do that, you you understand it more. And when you give grace and forgiveness to the undeserving, you feel something different. And when you serve the poor and the broken, something inside of you, when you do those kind of things, you just go, this matters. Like, this really matters. This changes people's lives. Amen. I had somebody send me a, uh, uh, they shared their testimony with me. And then at the end, they were like, this, the church has changed my life. The Jar Community Church has changed my life. 
And then at the end, they just put, I'm all in. Next message. The church becomes the body of Christ. That's the message of the church. That the church becomes the body of Christ. So Christ is the head. Think about this. Physically, Paul is saying Christ is the head and the church is the body. Arms, feet, toes, everything. But if you've been around church for long enough, you might have heard of this concept of the body of Christ. Or if you read it in the Bible and you just kind of kind of gets blurry. You don't think about it too much. Okay, yeah, body of Christ. We are, we're all supposed to do something. He's the head. He mentions it multiple times in the, in the New Testament. But it just hit me this week. I've never really thought about this before. But what good is the head, folks, if you don't have a body? And what good is the body if you don't have a head? I don't know how it happens, but mysteriously, the body and the head, when they are connected together, doing the work of God, is a beautiful sight to behold. Christ is still the head directing the body. Philip Yancey writes it so well. This is what he says. Visit the most dangerous and deprived parts of the planet, and on the front lines you'll find Christians establishing microcredit banks, staffing hospitals and schools, drilling wells, and housing refugees. Those who invest their hope in an unseen world prove it by the actions in this world. They strive not to be so heavenly-minded that they are no earthly good, and not so earthly-minded as to be of no heavenly good. They live, in other words, as citizens of two different kingdoms, putting feet to Jesus' prayer of God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first church I ever pastored was in Flora, Indiana, which is in western Indiana. And Flora sits kind of in the middle of Carroll County. So think of a square, put this, the town right in the middle, that's Carroll County, and all around Flora is cornfields and hog farms. There are more hogs in Carroll County than there are people. That's why I always tell, you know, people who are single and they're like, man, I need to find a county where I can find someone, don't go to Carroll County because the hogs have a better chance than you do. You know what I mean? Just don't do that. Now, the church... When I first arrived at this church, it was an older church, and uh, it was very inward-focused. But over time, they really started being the hands and the feet of Jesus. And one particular day, uh, the church was tested to be the body of Christ. There was a house that was right behind the church that were neighbors to us that we didn't even know, And there was a tragedy that happened at that house. Now, the parents, Ivan and Maria, who lived in that house, had three kids. And these three kids 
were like girls gone wild, boys gone wild. I mean, they were out of control. And uh, during church, many times, they would be playing loud rock music as church was going on. So I've heard some of you before, and you start complaining, that train, I hear that train. Think about hearing Ozzy Osbourne and Metallica right in the middle of Amazing Grace. True story. Right there, you're like, what? And they were in experimentation phases, so they would smoke cigarettes and they would throw their cigarette buds uh, out on the uh, you know, parking lot and people had to pick it up. And so they weren't very well liked until the tragedy. One night, Ivan took his life and committed suicide. And this family, who we did not know, was totally devastated. And it was at that moment that the church would have to decide, we will either step up or we will ignore who they are. And the church stepped up in amazing ways. Within two hours, folks, of the suicide, there were people from our church going inside the house and cleaning everything up. EMS wouldn't do it. The church went right in there, started cleaning up everything that was there. People from the church decided that they would watch Maria's children while she went and made funeral plans. And then there were multiple people from the church that said, we'll pay for the funeral because they couldn't afford it. Others made dinner, and not just during that difficult time, but for months, they would bring dinner and food. They, they uh, developed a, a kind of system where they would take their kids to the different activities that they needed, because she was a single mom now, and she was working by herself. And it was during this time, in which I'll never forget, that they accepted Christ. They were far from God. But the church stepped up and Maria and her three kids accepted Christ. And I'll never forget on their baptism day. I remember just standing there and I looked out and there were all of these people that were surrounding them. And it just hit me. That's the body of Christ. Like when it's working well. When it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, there is nothing more beautiful in the entire world. And I thought to myself, that's what I want to give my life to. People changing people's lives. They showed up. A few weeks ago, I got a phone call from someone that said, hey, there's this woman in our church, the jar, who's had tons of medical issues over the past year and her family's kind of struggling financially and we're, we're meeting as small groups and we just wanted to start praying for her and we thought we would collect some money to be able to help defray some of the cost. And what was so cool was that these groups were praying and helping financially and last Sunday this woman and her husband and kids They walked through the doors and they sat down with tears in her eyes. And I was just like, that's the body of Christ. I'll give my life for that. 
You see, folks, unlike any other organization, organizations, like I said earlier, come and go. But the church is life-giving and it's breathing. Why? Because the head is Christ and we are his body. You know, much of our life, folks, quite honestly, is monotonous. You wake up in the morning, get a shower, put your lip plumper on, you know. (laughs) Go to work. You um, pay some bills, take your kids to different activities. Watch some TV, go to bed. But every once in a while, folks, you are in a place with some other followers of Christ and the body of Christ comes together and you say to yourself, this must be the most holiest moment that I've ever experienced. I had a moment like that this week. Kids camp. You know why we didn't have so many kids up here singing? Because most of those kids came from our community. We're about 80 kids. What do we have? 15, maybe, that were singing today? They didn't have anywhere else to go, so they came to the jar. And on one particular night, when they were told the story of Jesus and whether or not they wanted to accept it, there were these little kids that were circling things. And 23 of them walked out into this hall and there was someone that prayed with each one of them. And I couldn't help but notice one of our volunteers, her daughter and her, uh, her niece were two of those kids. And I thought about the, the feeling that she must have had because I experienced it last year when Jordan accepted Christ. And it was like in that moment, I just teared up because I was like, oh God, nothing's better than this. Nothing. Today, maybe God is asking you to start praying for someone who's sick, someone who's hurting. Maybe you need to get a few friends together, a small group of people together, and to start praying for them. Wouldn't it just be amazing if there were like these little small prayer groups just like breaking out all over the church? Not organized, no particular night. Just say, you know what, Frank's going through some hard stuff, or Joe's going through some hard stuff, or Sally is, or, you know, Linda is. And all of a sudden, people just showed up, said, hey, you know what, we're not going to bother you, but for 10 minutes, we're just going to stand outside your house. We're going to pray that God would work in your life. How beautiful would that be? One last message uh, about the church. The church needs every single person. You know how, like, you got to sign up for a country club or you got to pay for some money? They only select a few. But the church is like, no, 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 no. We'll take anyone and everyone. Everyone needs to be involved. Every single person. Verse 16, Paul says this. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. And then let's read this last little phrase together. The last phrase there. As each part does its work. 
as each part does its work. There are six different passages of Scripture that speak to spiritual gifts in the Bible. What are spiritual gifts? They're basically that. They're a gift given by God's Spirit to Christ's followers. And it's a supernatural, God-empowered gift given to you. And you have a calling and a privilege and a responsibility to fulfill that gift in the body of Christ. I have a friend named Scotty who uh, I uh, met with a few weeks ago. And uh, she has a leadership gift. And one of the areas that we really wanted to work on was our student ministry. And so she said, well, I don't know if I'm gifted at small group kind of stuff, but I am a leader. And so she gets groups of people together to try to figure out how we can make impact and outlet the best middle school and high school ministry that we can. And when I watch her, I'm just like, you know what? She's doing her part in the body of Christ. Imagine if we could take everyone's gifts and what they do, how they serve, and we could share that. It might be like this. His name's Eric. And on the second Saturday of each month, he puts together cookies and drinks and different things. And we go into our community at the mall, at the bus station, at different places, and we show God's love in practical ways and lives are changed. He's doing his part in the body of Christ. Or her name's Jenny. She's up there right now. Some of you have babies and toddlers, but she's up in the nursery right now caring for those kids, in jar kids, and she's done it ever since she's been here. She's doing her part in the body of Christ. Or here's David. Each week he stands behind the scenes at the church office and he folds things and he puts stamps on things and he organizes things and he's doing his part in the body of Christ. Or here's Ruthanna. She uses her gift of administration and she puts together the program that you have, that you're taking notes with behind the scenes and she does her administrative skills so that we have that. She's doing her part in the body of Christ. Or here's Frank. Frank knows how important it is for people to be welcomed when they walk into the church. And so Frank was out there today greeting people, welcoming them, using his gift of encouragement to encourage others. He's doing his part in the body of Christ. Or here's Nancy. She has a gift of mercy and compassion. And she goes to the hospital when people are sick. When people are dying, when no one else really wants to be around that kind of sickness, and she is there to pray for them and to encourage them. And she's doing her part in the body of Christ. Now, we could go through multiple names and multiple areas of gifts. This is all I'm saying. You may know what your spiritual gifts are. You may not. But if you don't, I can't imagine that if you've given your life to Christ, how more exciting it would be than to know that God has simply given you a particular gift for you to use in the body of Christ. You can look at Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 if you want. You can write those down and read it this week. It'll tell you about those gifts. Or in September, we'll have our next steps class and we'll actually talk about what is the gift that you could use, that God has given to you to help you through that. I'd like to close with this. 
I was thinking about this whole concept this week about living or dying and what that looked like and to live a life worthy of the calling of God. And uh, I was taken back to our family and a vacation that we went on recently. We talked to some friends of ours and we asked them, we said, hey, we've heard uh, Vegas has become kid friendly. We know you went recently. Uh, is it? And they're like, oh, yeah, it's really kid friendly. So for spring break, we went to Las Vegas. You know what our friends are now? Liars. <laughs> Las Vegas, folks, is not kid friendly. Don't let anyone kid you. OK, it's not. So what we basically had to do was day trips going to other places. And one of the places that we went to was this place, Death Valley. Now, Death Valley is the lowest elevated place in the United States. And at its lowest place, nothing lives. It's called Bad Water Basin. And it is almost completely made up of salt. Now, there are rivers that flow into Death Valley, but there are no rivers that flow out of Death Valley. I mean, it's called Death Valley for a reason, folks, because at its lowest point, everything is dead. And I was thinking about it this week, that I don't know where you're at with Christ. Maybe you're a little stale, maybe you're distant from God, maybe you're feeling dead. Maybe like Death Valley, everything is flowing into you. You come here on Sunday, everything's flowing into you, but nothing's really kind of flowing out of you to give yourself away. And I want to end kind of where we began. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says this, As a prisoner for the Lord then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. May we as a church remind people that getting what you want doesn't make you happy. May we be a church, may we be a place that reshapes people's priorities. May we be a church where the body of Christ really lives and is caring for hurting broken people. And may we be a church where every single person steps up and serves and gives their life away for the things in this world that really matter. Let's stand for closing prayer. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come up. If you'd like prayer for anything, uh, they would love to pray with you. And so please come up if you're Feeling some of that deadness that you could be prayed for. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your church called the jar. It's changed my life. And the people who sit in these seats, God, are people that I love. Help us to be a community that's not just preparing to die, but we're trying to, how, we're trying to learn how to live to the fullest. Give us wisdom on knowing how to 
be the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus to our community. Speak to hearts right now, God. That you might prompt them within their spirit to step up and step out. And to serve you so that your name would be made great. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.